Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to lead and guide us and show us what you would want us to see from this section of scriptures. And, and we ask you just to show us your care and your love for this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 5. Solomon has completed the temple building. He's dedicated. He's brought in all the stuff that David had dedicated for the temple. And now we have, or he's going to get ready to bring that in. So chapter 5, verse 1. Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated, and the silver and the gold and all the instruments, but put he in the treasures of the house of the Lord. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is, uh, is Zion. Wherefore, all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast which was in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the Ark and they brought up the Ark and of the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle. These did the priest and the Levites bring up. And, so, and also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark sacrificed sheep and oxen which could not be numbered for the multitude. We'll stop there for a moment. <laughs> all right, so here we have the, the temple being finished. Uh, huge compared to the tabernacle. Fairly small compared to other temples of, of other gods, but it was a beautiful thing completely covered with multiple tons of gold. <laughs> and we talked about that all through the, through the building of this. And it's all brought together. And then he brings out all the stuff and, he made, and it makes point that he brings out everything that David had put together for this. So Solomon puts out tons of silver. David had put away tons of silver and brass and, and gold and all these things. And, and so this was a beautiful, very expensive edifice to God. And Solomon was doing it for God. And he made sure that it was a point. And we've talked about all through this, you know, even in the church age, we've gone through these cycles where people build huge churches because they want to honor God for their churches. And then you know, we go through a cycle where everybody goes, well, well, we don't need these great big buildings because that's a waste of money. We need to put all of our money into evangelism and, and outreach. And then, and then we end up with poor, you know, things that look like, you know, uh, people go, well, what kind of God do we serve that he has these little rundown, <laughs> rundown dumps and people go back to the other extreme and, and build edifices. And, and this has always been the case. Uh, human beings do not like to stay balanced. <laughs> We swing from extreme to extreme. We do it with the law. It wasn't so long ago that churches were very legalistic and everything was all about the laws and, and being with, you know, following God. And then we end up going to the point where people almost use grace for a license to sin and stay, instead of staying in a balance between the two. And we, all we do is look at history and we see these swings back and forth, back and forth. Uh, so my goal is that we stay in the Word of God and stay balanced be between everything and know that God is true and valid. And after the house was built, it says a Sol Solomon assembled, and this word means he summoned. Yeah, it wasn't a voluntary summon, uh, a thing. The, the way the language is in Hebrew is he 
basically from the king said, "Come, you're coming to this meeting. Not even come to this meeting, but you are coming. He called all the elders, those would be, and the of Israel, which would be those who had been the ones that run the various tribes. He called the heads of the tribes and the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto Jerusalem. And the reason being to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, in which is Zion. So his whole purpose was... The city of David is Jerusalem. His hometown is Bethlehem. He set up his kingship in Jerusalem. He, first, he was, for the first part of his rule, David ruled in Hebron, uh, which is outside of Jerusalem. Then, when they conquered Jerusalem, he moved the throne to, to uh, Jerusalem. So that basically Hebron was in Judah, Jerusalem was outside of Judah, the tribe of Judah, right at the corner, right at the edge of ben, uh, Benjamin, uh, which was a political move in his case because it took it out of this is where, you know, out from Judah into more you know outside of his his tribe, so it was kind of a political move in his case to move it out of the tribe of Judah's land, and. And we want to, we've talked about this. Jerusalem is also called Zion, like it brings in this mention, which is the poetic name for it. Uh, Mount Moriah, uh, the Mount. <laughs> There's lots of names for Jerusalem in the scriptures. And here he's saying they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant out of the city of David, which, and then it says, which is Zion. So it can't be referring to Bethlehem because Bethlehem is not Zion. Jerusalem is Zion, and it was at, it has been outside of Jerusalem because that is where the angel, the death angel was coming through to Jerusalem when they weren't handling the ark right, and, and uh, David stopped, and it was sat there at the threshing hole floor of, I forgot his name, but, uh, from that guy's house where they set up the tabernacle bringing it up into Jerusalem to the threshing floor where the temple was built. Well, they're going to go in here. They're doing it right this time. We didn't read that far. But they do, matter of fact, we did read it, and we'll get that in chapter 4, verse 4. They're going to do it right this time. They're not putting it on a cart like they did before so that uh, Uzzah reaches out and, and gets killed for touching the ark when it, when it tries to fall off the ark, uh, off the cart. So they're moving it up into Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, what's currently called the Temple Mount. Uh, and it says, Wherefore all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast which was in the seventh month. Now the feasts in the seventh month, it could have been one of two feasts. It was either the Feast of Trumpets or the Feast of Tabernacles. Both of them are in the seventh month. Uh, and it doesn't clarify which one. It just says the Feast of the seventh month, uh, or the Feast which is in the seventh month. And so that could be one of two, two feasts. Uh, Tabernacles is the feast that commemorates the wandering in the wilderness. And Trumpets is the one that will commemorate the coming of the king. 
So I have a feeling that it probably was trumpets that they brought it up just because of the significance of it, but that's my personal opinion. It's, it's not worth anything, but, uh, but we know that it's one of those two feasts that are in the seventh month. Um, and so they're bringing it up. This is a big time for them. Uh, it's a big feast, and people are, and he's calling us saying, we now have the tabernacle. And, re, and remember, before now, they've been, they've been, excuse me, we now have the te- temple. Before, they were at the tabernacle, which was a tent. And they'd been using a tent since the wandering times in the wilderness. Over 400 years, they've been worshiping God in a tent coming to a tent for it. And the tent hasn't been moving around up to you know, very often up till now. But now they're going to say, we now have a building for God. And this is going to be a big deal. Solomon's proud of this. As, you know, this was David's dream. His father's dream was to build this house for God. That was going to be a glorious house. David said he got the plans for this house from God and gave them to Solomon to to follow through with. So here is the big event he's called, all the leaders of Israel to come together. And then this verse says, all the men of Israel assembled themselves. So apparently this is such a big deal that people are going, we need to get, we need to be there to see this. And I can picture that, you know, this is a huge, huge event for them. They're going to build a temple to God, something that is no longer moving uh, around and going to be more significant to come to and more beautiful to come to than a 500-year-old tent. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure they fixed it up over time and it wasn't the same tent from 500 years ago, but you understand what I'm saying. It was, it was old. It was you know, shabby. And Solomon is building something that is a monument to God. Now, the problem with the monument to God is that people started worshiping the monument rather than God. And even when Jesus was around, and it wasn't Solomon's temple, it was Herod's temple, people were saying, well, God can't, won't destroy us because we got the temple here. Same thing they were saying when they, you know, Solomon said, we will never be defeated because God lives in this, in this city. Look, look at his, his, his town. And they started swearing by the temple and swearing by this and swearing by the, by the you know, covenant, Ark of the Covenant and all these things. And they forgot God. And this is the problem sometimes when people are looking at all the stuff they have and saying, look what God has done, look how we're blessing God, and then they forget that the blessing is, is not God, but they start thinking somehow that what is being blessed is, is God instead. And we see this all through the scriptures. The brazen serpent that Moses put up in the wilderness when people were being uh, bit by serpents and they were dying by the time of, of uh, the kings, it was being used as, to worship. People worshiped the brazen, brazen serpent because it was a miracle-working uh, talisman, so it had to have power in of itself, and they started worshiping it. And this is something that God understands that we end up doing, and I think this is why he took the body of Moses. Can you imagine if he didn't take the body of Moses that they would be making trips to go see the, the tomb of Moses? Probably why he took Elijah as well, so that people would not be going and saying, here's our great prophet, you know, we got to go visit his, his tomb, because that's the way humans are. We like to be something that we can see. 
And this is a problem. You know, and God understands this because he's asking us to worship something we can't see. You know, he is invisible to the human eye, and, and we get to worship him. And I don't know how many times you've witnessed to somebody, but I've had this thrown out. Well, how can you believe in something you can't see? Well, there's lots of answers, and I have lots of answers for that, but you know, it's easy to make those answers, but I understand what they're saying. It's hard to focus on something when you can't see it. You don't know what it looks like. You don't know anything about it other than I'm in a relationship with God, so I know him, and I can focus on him, and I know that he's real, but I understand their question to a degree, you know, and, but because people want something to focus on. And it's real easy to have happen. Churches, magnificent, magnificent churches, will put up things and people will start focusing on the stuff, the, the beautiful stuff uh, that, that are out there. And be, to, to look at and, and say, well, okay, this is here. And, you know, and we think about this. When you think about church, and I don't need anybody answering, but when you think about church, what do you think about when you think about church? Hopefully you're thinking about the Word of God and all of that, but... You know, there are certain people that they think about, well, uh, for the average Baptist, got to have my hymnal, got to have my singing, you know, uh, got to have this, got to have that. You know, and if it's not there, they get upset. I can't tell you how many people get, a, you know, question me all the time about, well, where was the offering at? Well, it's in the box in the back. You don't pass a plate? <laughs> no, we don't pass the plate. Some people have used that as a worship tool, as their worship, because they make sure everybody sees them putting their item, you know, their item into the plate. And that was how they took their worship. You know, and I'm not saying everybody does, but I'm just saying we have this tendency to lift things up rather than God. We are in a physical body that's totally anchored to the, to the physical which is why we need Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are become new. Uh, it affects the way we see one another. It affects the way we should be treating one another. Uh, we should be treating other, each other as brothers and sisters, not as objects to be used and abused. And, and all of this stuff, it does change everything. And this is what all this is about. They're building a temple and... Solomon has the right attitude. David had the right attitude. David and Solomon's attitude is, we love God and we just want to honor God. And the problem is, not everybody follows that same, same process. Uh, even we could say, okay, I'm here honoring God and it's all about God. But how easy is it for us to get set in our ways on how we want to worship God? How we want to honor God? What what does it mean to honor God? And we look at somebody else who's not honoring him in quite the same way we honor him and go, something's wrong with that person because you're not doing whatever. You know, and there could be any number of things. I've traveled a lot. I've seen different ways of worship. I've seen different, different groups that worship and say, wow, this is different. You know, but appreciate it because they're still worshiping God. And this is important, and it's a great point. You know, we, we're all supposed to be right into the spiritual now, unfortunately, we are in bodies of flesh and blood, and we feel, we touch, and we think, and we're influenced by the world, where the world is telling us to think totally different than God tells us to, to think, and that's hard. And this is why I say we need to be in God's word as much as possible, and 
be able to feed our spirit. Because if we're watching television all the time, we're, wa- we're reading secular books all the time, we're uh, hanging out with non-Christians all the time, and I'm not saying we can't, you know, that we can't hang out with them at all, but if that is our total focus all the time, it is no wonder that we are not growing spiritually. All right? The more I'm in God's word, the more I'm hanging out with godly people, talking about God, you know, lifting him up, the more I'm in church, the more I'm filling my, feeding my spirit, the more I start seeing things from the spiritual side, spiritual side of things. And, you know, it's easy to be infected. It really is. You know, to be totally infected. And I, and I love, you know, I've shared many times. And my favorite example of being infected by the world's thought process is to ask you what, what you think of when I say prehistoric man. Now, for me, I think no such thing because God starts with the history of Adam and Eve from the very beginning. There's no such thing as prehistoric man. But I do know because I was infected with it. I know when I say that term, I know the I know the vision that pops up, even though the logical side of me says no such thing. My mind's jumping into guy dressed in in, in clothes, you know, hunched over, dragging dragging the dragging his woman by the hair behind him, you know, the, all the things that are pictured to us on a prehistoric man. This is how easy it is for our thinking to be polluted, and we don't even know that it's polluted until something's brought out to, to show us that it is, and that's where the Word of God starts. The more we get into the Word of God, the more we start realizing how polluted our thinking is. <laughs> yeah, well, we had... Things taught to us when we were kids, things taught to us, you know, in school, things taught to us on the television, maybe even by our parents, you know, who knows, you know, how good parents are raising them, uh, raising you, and all these things are in there laying a bad foundation that has to be wiped out. And it takes time to wipe out the old thought processes and replace them with the godly thought processes. And so we want to keep this in mind, you know, as we're going into this. And here they are bringing the uh, Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and marching it up to the temple. Now, if they did it right, and I'm sure they did, it's covered and it's being carried right because they did get the Levites according to chapter 4. And the elders of Israel came and the Levites took the Ark. So... The Levites should have been doing this the right, the right way. And we do know that they were carrying it by the pole. We're going to see that the, the poles were being used to carry it. And it should have been covered, just as it to- was told in, in uh, Exodus and Leviticus, that it should have been covered, even though it doesn't, you know, going through this, because not because it says so, but the Levites are doing this, and I'm sure they did it the right way. Especially after Uzzah died, died the previous king, when they went for moving it the wrong way. Uh, Solomon probably remembers, the Levites probably remember, and they're going, okay, if they didn't remember how to move it, they're going, how do we move this thing and do it the right way? All right, so it should have been moved, and it says, all of them there, and the Levites took up the ark, and verse 5 says, and they brought up the ark and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, these did the priest and the Levites bring up. So here we have a very interesting statement that kind of gets overlooked. They have packed up everything. They have packed up the Ark of the Covenant, the Tent of the Covenant, uh, uh, the, ta- the 
the, the tabernacle of the congregation is the tabernacle. So they packed up all that tent, all the walls, all the stuff, all the wood, and there's a big procession headed up Jerusalem because this was a big deal. Uh, if you remember back in there, they had, I think it was seven or eight wagons that were used for carrying the, the, wood, be the wood boards and everything and all the, the stays uh, and the, the skins and the tent. Uh, so this is, you know, they're not just coming up with a procession with the tabernacle. They're bringing the tabernacle, or the, the, excuse me, they're not just having a procession with just the Ark of the Covenant, but the tabernacle's coming up. All of the original equipment of the tabernacle is coming up on this long, long line coming up the mountain to go to the Temple Mount, which is at the top of the mountain, top of Jerusalem. So this is something, you know, and this is something I just noticed this, this week as I was kind of tearing this apart. I always thought, well, it was just the ark, and then I, re I looked closer, and I'm going, no, this is the whole thing. They have brought the tabernacle with them. Now, they're not setting the tabernacle up in the temple, so that means when they get there, they probably had a room somewhere in the temple <laughs> where the tabernacle was stored, all right, because uh, it came up with them. And it wasn't set up in the, in the new temple. From what we know, it was never set up again in all of time. It was just stored, probably stored away originally with great honor. We used this for 500 years. We're going to put it away. You know, in today's world, we probably would have put it, put it, put it up in a, a museum and made it a tourist attraction or something. But <laughs> I think they would, have made, they, they would have treated it with great honor. And so they bring this up. And the Levites are bringing it up. And verse, uh, these did the priest and the Levites bring up. Again, so it's repeating that the Levites are bringing up all of this, which was their job. When they were appointed by God, God picked each tribe of the Levites to handle various parts of the tabernacle when it moved. All right? Um, and then it says in verse 6, Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark, of the, the ark sacrificed sheep and oxen which could not be told nor numbered for multitude. So here we have something very interesting being said. You've got the ark. You've got all the stuff of the tabernacle. And before the ark, people are making offerings. I can almost picture the, the, pre, the Levites get to take two or three steps and then are offering sacrifices. That's about the only way you're going to get sacrifices without numbers. Can you imagine what this must have looked like? Enough sheep and oxen being killed that it says they can't number it. Now, part of it is nobody paid attention. Otherwise, they would have been able to number because they, they can count to millions and stuff even then. But I... I'm very glad that we don't worship by sacrifice <laughs> uh, with the blood and the destruction and everything on that. I just can't picture how much blood was being spread with this sacrifice going on. And they're killing these animals, burning these animals, probably burnt, probably burnt offerings on this as, as they're going up. And they're saying so much of it was killed off that they did not even number it. Now, they're looking at it as a great celebration. You know, we're honoring God with the sacrifices. 
And I'm not sure how they offered these sacrifices because the, the, the sacrifices were supposed to be on the altar of God. And, I, and it doesn't seem to be that the altar has been set back up yet. You know, were they offering on the temple as, you know, continuous temple offering? There's not a lot of details as to what exactly was happening here, but they said sacrifices were being made without that they didn't number. And I would hope that they did it the right way. I would hope that they were using that that nice little altar, 30, 30 feet by 30 feet, <laughs> uh, offering all these sacrifices as the temp, as the Ark of the Covenant came up. And it doesn't tell us that whether they were doing it with every step or they were just up on the in the Temple Mount uh, offering the sacrifice, but it said so many animals were sacrificed that they could not get account or I would think they literally just didn't did nobody did care you know, cared enough to count you know and if you've ever been in a place where things are happening so fast that you really don't you know don't know how much you've dealt with uh, and I think that's what was happening here and I don't know what it was I don't know where they were offering their sacrifices and how they were offering their sacrifices and I can't imagine that every three three or four steps they were setting up the altar and putting fire under it and and burning sacrifices, but it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us how they were doing it. So I'm, my assumption is that they were burn, burning the sacrifices up on the altar in the temple, uh, but it doesn't tell us. But all it does is tell us that a lot of animals were being killed. You know, um, then it says in verse 7, And the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of of the Lord into the place to the oracle of the house into the most holy place even in, under the wings of the cherubim for the cherubim spread forth their wings over the place of the ark and the cherubim covered the ark and the staves above uh, thereof above and they drew out the staves of the ark that the ends of the staves were seen from the ark before the oracle but they were not seen without and there they are to this day there is nothing. There was nothing in the ark save the two tablets that Moses put therein at Horeb. Then the Lord made a covenant. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. All right. So we have here. Says the priest brought the ark of the covenant. They put it in the holy of holies. And they started to pull out the poles. And found out they couldn't get them out. They hit the walls. <laughs> Uh, and I don't understand. I, I, I've looked at this. I've thought about this. I don't know how it could have happened. But it says, in King James, it says, um, they, they drew out. In Hebrew, it says it made long. And basically, they were trying to pull them out. And if you've ever tried to move, maneuver something in a very tight area, they ran out of room to draw the poles out before it cleared the, <laughs> cleared the hooks, and they couldn't get them out. Uh, and so it says those poles were there to that day. Now, I have looked at the various pictures of the ark and everything, and I um, understand how this could happen, actually. Remember, the, the wall is only 30 feet, 30 feet uh, long, which means that these poles were a lot longer than I ever thought that they were, because the ark is only about seven feet. But I think, that, you know, as I'm looking at this, I think that the poles were long enough that there was no way that they would touch it. So you're putting three or four people on each one. You're going to have long poles to begin with. 
and nobody's going to want to be within a foot or two of the ark just in case they stumble and touch the ark. So these poles were probably somewhere close to 15, 20 feet long. So that you'd have seven feet and you'd have another, you know, six or seven feet on both sides of it to get enough people to carry it and not get close to the ark. You know, I've always pictured these little short poles, but you know, the more I think about it, none of those Levites wanted to accidentally touch the ark either because they understood that that was not to be done. And here we're reading the, the poles were so long they couldn't get them out. Right. Yeah, you've got a seven-foot arc in the middle of a 30-foot uh, room, um, and you're trying to pull them out. So even if you only had another 12 feet, you're not clearing the arc to get the poles out. Um, and it's kind of almost hilarious when you think about it. They build this thing, and they can't get the poles out of the, <laughs> out of the arc. And it's just put in there. As a matter of fact, we couldn't, they couldn't get them out. And the interesting thing I find is that the poles showed into the holy place. They stuck out, it stuck out so that people could see that they were there, but the priests, but nobody could see it from outside of the holy place. Uh, which is kind of funny. I don't know if they actually stuck through the, through, the, through, the, through the curtain or they pushed the curtain out so there was this <laughs> bulge in the curtain. It, it doesn't, again, it's not real specific. It just says they could see them. Yeah, and you could picture that if it was pushing the curtain, that's technically seeing, seeing the poles. I don't think the poles literally stuck out of the curtain, especially when you talk when you look at it. And uh, Josephus said the curtain was seven inches thick, uh, three yeah. inch, uh, three inches thick. So uh, I can't imagine that they tore a hole in the curtain to push the poles out of. So I think the poles literally just pushed the curtain out, and they're going, oh, "That's where the that's where the poles are." Uh, but you know, it's kind of an interesting thing that when they put it in there, they, uh, of all the things they did, nobody planned on how do we get these poles out of the, out of the ark once we put it in there. Uh, they were so concentrated on the building <laughs> that they never thought about this part of the process. And I, I, I think it's funny. <laughs> You're suggesting that the walls were still fabric. I thought the curtain was. The curtain of the wall, uh, between the Holy, holy of holies and the holy place. Which also means that there's a, you know, the more I think about it, it's hard to me to even picture what they're talking about. Because I would think if it was coming out the way to the curtain for it to be seen beyond the holy place, I would have just kept pulling it, through, pulling it that direction and then closed the curtain. So when I see this, I don't, I can't picture what they're, what they're actually saying, unless the curtain surrounded the Ark of the Ark of the Covenant and not in the Holy of Holies and not uh, not just a separate separated room on it. And yeah, three of the walls were solid for the for the holy place, and then they had the curtain on it because the curtain was still there during. Uh, Herod's time, and that is what ripped when Jesus died from top to bottom. So the holy place always had that separation of the curtain. And apparently that's what they're talking about, because nobody's seeing the wall, because the curtain blocks it. And, 
but I just don't understand how it could be po poking into the curtain and nobody says, well, let's just move the curtain for a moment, pull the, pull the pole, poles out. Uh, I don't. Um, nothing biblical about that, but they may have had a tradition not to touch them, uh, which is possible. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I read this and I'm going, I, I can't understand the logistics of the, of the issue. But I know the Bible's true, so there, there's something in there that I wish they gave me more detail so I would know exactly what it was that they were, what the problem was. Oh, it's there for some reason. It's, and I'm sure that if I had bothered to look up the archaeological information from the Hebrew sources, that there's probably some ex explanation. I, I just don't like to fill my mind with a lot of those things because sometimes they're just so bizarre as to why they're there. Uh, but they took, this, they took the ark up. They put it into the Holy of Holies between the wings of the cherubim. And remember, there's a cherubim each side, and the wings stretched out, and 15-foot wingspan each direction. Their wings touch in the center, and their wings touch the wall. And the ark is set down in between the two cherubim, underneath their wings. And just as it was set up to be in the tabernacle. And so now we have... the. The, the mercy seat has cherubim with wings touching over it. Now you've got cherubim above them <laughs> with their wings touching over it. So we have the ark and the mercy seat. And everybody remembers the mercy seat sits on top of the ark of the covenant. So the ark of the covenant is the law. The mercy seat sits on top of that, which is God's mercy. And then the cherubim overshadow that just as they have all through the scriptures when we've seen them. Uh, and it says... And the staves were there above, and then they couldn't get them out, which I just talked about. And in verse 10 is something that is hard to understand. Verse 10 says, There was nothing in the ark save two the two tablets which Moses had put therein at Horeb, and Horeb's another name for Mount Sinai, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. Now this is kind of an interesting statement because we're told in... Uh, the Pentateuch that a pot of manna was put into the Ark of the Covenant and we're told that uh, Aaron's rod that budded was put into the Ark of the Covenant and so the question is what happened to them <laughs> answer is we don't know nothing in the Bible tells us really what happened to it I will give you the two opinions that most people talk about one is that the manna and the st staff were never placed in, but were placed before, which is the way that one reading that could be made. That contradicts Hebrews that said that they were in there when Paul talks about them being in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but people say the Greek can also mean something different tonight. That's really stretching it when you look at the Greek side of it. Other people have mentioned the, the story in 1 Samuel 6, when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, and the Philistines apparently opened it and were, were punished, but when they sent it back to Israel oh, yeah. in 1 Samuel 6, 19, the Levites opened it up as well. And 53,000 of them died in that city. 
Is it possible that somebody took something out of the ark during that period of time? Anything is possible. Uh, we don't know. All we know is at some point between the wandering and this point, the stuff that was in the ark disappeared, other than the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Yeah, it had the Ten Commandments, it had the pot of manna, and it had the rod that budded. Uh, Aaron's rod that budded. At some point, those things had been removed. Uh, or it could also be, and there is a third one that's kind of brought out, it could also be that they forgot what was in it and the only thing they remembered that was in it was the Ten Commandments. That's really stretching it because most of these guys really knew their, knew their Bible pretty well, so that would really be stretching it that... My, my other question is, how do they know what's in it? Because they're not supposed to open it either. So, so what year was this thing? It, it Approximately 1,000 B.C., give or, take, give or take a few. So that's when there was nothing in the before that there was. Somewhere before this, we know that the 800 years before that, or 600 years before that, we have three things in the ark. By this time, we're supposed to only have one thing in the ark. Uh, we don't know. I don't know. There's nothing that I've read. Nobody, nobody referenced any historical document anywhere to say what happened to it. And this is one of those things that, that throws people. God says, you know, it's said in there that the only thing in there is the law, is basically the law. And what happened to everything else, we don't know. Now, if you want to do some study, you can read commentaries. I read several commentaries on this, and this, people have all kinds of different thoughts about it. The only thing they cared about was the law, uh, and God's mercy and grace and, and government does not matter, so it was taken out, and all kinds of strange <laughs> documents. I'm just going to say the answer to the question is we don't know where the other things went. We don't know when they were taken out. We don't know if they were taken out and just didn't know that, you know, and they just forgot that they were or didn't care. And that could be one thing as well. There's so many times when the only thing they cared about saying was these. Uh, and, and, but the only problem with that is says the only thing. <laughs> All right. So they're, they're being very specific here. It says, it, it said the, the stone tablets were in the ark. Then I could make a case that uh, they just didn't care about the non, the non-law items in there. So what happened? I don't know. Maybe when I get to heaven, I'll, I'll ask God what happened to the stuff in the ark. I don't think it really matters. <laughs> and I'm not going to care then. Uh, I kind of tend to believe the idea that either the Philistines or the Levites took it out back in the, in the time of the first, first Samuel. That kind of makes sense because it was outside the control of the, of the priest during that period of time. And I can, I can picture somebody I can almost picture the, the, the Philistines taking it out, and that was the big problem. Not just that they put it in the house of Dagon, but that they actually took things out that were holy, and God says, okay, we're going to really bring judgment upon you because of this. And they had a lot of judgment on them. You know, tumors and deaths and, and all these things that happened to them could very well be because, not just because they dared to touch God's ark, but that they opened it and took the, the holy things out of it. So... One of those things I, I bounced around, and I can't tell you all the things I read. There, you know, when you start trying to follow these kind of stories out that have no answers, you get all kinds of people that give up all their different opinions and 
some of them are funny, some of them are you know, cute to read, but I don't want to load everybody up with all the different craziness out there. Suffice it to say, two of the three items disappeared somewhere along the lines. How? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And no authoritative history source tells us anything about how they disappeared. So there were, at one point, three things in it. Hebrews tells us the same thing that says there were three things put in it. Now that in, some scholars try to debate whether that in means before. And in Hebrew, you can make that case. In Greek, it's really hard to make that case that it was before the ark. And that says uh, that people just put it before God and that's where it's set. So their, their view on it is the ark sat in the holy place and then they put this pot and this, this rod in front of it that nobody could see because except for the priests when they walked in. I just don't see that being the case. Uh, but whatever the case is at this point, there's one item, according to this, there's only one item left in the ark, or in, in the ark. Um, and that's why people try to go, that it was put before, and because they're trying to get, nobody would have taken those things out, so uh, who knows? There's been a lot of evil times in Israel where anything could have happened, you know, that wasn't documented, wasn't, wasn't out there. People raid, raid things, you know, and, you know, we think of it in this day, and, you know, it's kind of funny because Every once in a while we'll go, something happens in a church and we'll go, like, who, would, who would steal from God? Lots of people that don't, tr- don't believe in God. You know, all through history, it's gone through cycles where people really honor and respect God and churches have been able to leave their doors open and, and not lock their doors and have very expensive stuff and nobody would dare ever touch them to times like today where you better lock up your door, put on the alarm system because if you don't, you know, nothing will be left in the church. Uh, and so this same thing, and you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So the same thing was happening in Israel when they would fall away from God completely. Uh, who knows what would happen, and who whoever who would be willing to take it? The Philistines definitely would have been willing to take it. A Israelites in in First Samuel actually opened it up and looked at it, um, and paid paid dearly for it. And it said in here that it mentions that the only thing in it was the two tablets that Moses put in at Horeb. Now again, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. So when you see that, that name in there, it's Mount Sinai. And when God made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of e- Egypt. Now we oftentimes forget that this, the law was a covenant between God and Israel. All right, because people make a big deal out of well, why don't why don't you Christians follow all the laws in the Bible? Well, because they are a covenant with God and Israel. Now, when I say that, do I mean that the laws are totally worthless? Absolutely not. The law came from the character of God and is very valuable because it, it does represent God. But we want to be careful about saying, you know, the Jews tell us that there are 613 laws. Just a, just a handful. And those were all part of their covenant. It is what made them stand out from every nation in the world during their time. The idea that you had restrictions on adultery, coveting, uh, murder was pretty much generally wrong, but you know, having 
adultery was not something that was uncommon amongst generations. Uh, fornication, uh, stealing, if you could get away with it, was not that frowned on by most of the places. You know, we think of it uh, in our day and age, the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We look at that and say, how cruel and how terrible. But when it was given to them, do you realize how strange it was for the Jews to have retribution only for equivalent punishment? They lived in a time that if somebody stole from you and you were strong enough and could get a big enough army, you went in and you wiped out, you wiped out that person that stole from you, took all of their possessions and all of their people captive, and that was considered justice. And God said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. People looked at the Jews like, you guys are weird. You, you can only take back what they took. You, there's something wrong. You, if they hit you, you can only do the same amount of damage. You can't, you can't totally destroy them. The people looked at them like they were complete, total weaklings and, and fools. Pretty much the same way when Jesus intensified it for us and said, you have heard it say, you know, he goes, love your enemies, do good to those who despitefully use you. Jesus ratcheted it up even further. He says, I don't even want you to retaliate. You love them. You, you are to honor them. You know, uh, God keeps doing this to us over time. He keeps moving up the standard. And from our perspective, where we're at under a Christian thought process, we look at what God said to the Jews of an eye for an eye and going, wow, that was so hard. God, why would you... Why would you ever do that? But for the Jews, that was like, uh, what do you mean, God? This is not the way we've been raised up. You know, you know we, you, when somebody harms you, you go in and you take care of them. So here we have this whole process. God made a covenant with them and said, these are my rules for you. These are what are going to set you apart from every other nation. God told them to keep the Sabbath. And we've mentioned this before. We don't think so much of it in our day and age because we're used to having weekends off, two days a week off. It wasn't so long ago, even in America, that you worked six days a week and, took, and you took the seventh because we were a Christian nation. Outside of America, you worked seven days a week, every week. And the people looked at the Jews taking every Saturday off. And you know what they said about them? You guys are a bunch of lazy people. You have to take a vacation every week. You are nothing but lazy people. Because God told them to rest one day a week. And this is something, and we're now starting to find out that we need this rest. Psychologists and scientists are saying that if somebody does not rest... They do damage to their body, they do damage to their, their, their soul, and they burn themselves out. And I do understand that. I one time worked for six months without a day off. And I, hard work, not just, not just simple work, hard work for six months. And after, after the, toward the end of the six months, I was a grump. Nobody wanted to be around me. I was, I had no, I was so tired and my days were, or 12, 16-hour days, and I was just totally burnt 
out because I disobeyed God and didn't rest. <laughs> so we want to keep in mind all of God's laws are based upon very solid principles. <laughs> They're based upon his character. You shall not lie, to, you know, you shall not bear false witness. Why? Because God does not lie. All right? You know, we're not to covet because God is our provider. And, you know, I've always thought it interesting, the, the commandment that everybody always leaves out is that 10th commandment, thou shall not covet, because that's the catch-all. If you think you've kept every other commandment, I can guarantee every single person is coveted. They've wanted something that somebody else has. They may not have acted on it, but the idea of covet is not to act on it. It is, you shall not covet which means don't even desire the stuff that everybody has. So we're all in violation of that one. And we have an entire industry in this world to say, I want you to covet. It's called advertising. Yeah. And, I, and I love these commercials. Yeah. I love these commercials telling me how much, I, trying to convince me how much I need something that I never knew that I needed. Uh, and I, lo I love some of the really hard ones, you know, that it's so hard to flip an egg that they have the pan that you turn the whole pan over and the egg sits in the pan, or the pancake, or whatever, because it's so hard to take a spatula and flip them over, so now you have to turn the whole pan upside down. Uh, you know, and I, there's just some of these things that I look at, I'm going, how could anybody try to convince you that you really need it? And yet those things are still being sold. <laughs> and you know, we're, we're convinced in our, on all these car ads that there's so many things in a car that we don't need. A car is not just from getting from point A to point B, it is to be comfortable in while you're doing it. All right? And I understand. I like to be comfortable in my car, but, you know, my car's main purpose is to get me from one place to the other place. And yet, all these ads, you know, you get a car that parks itself, drives itself, gives you directions, you know, all these different things that cars now do for you. I can't even keep track of all the stuff the cars do for me because pretty soon the car is going to be smarter than we are the way they're going. But, you know, they keep advertising, and advertising is all built in to make us covet. Make us want something that we don't have and desire to go get it. And we need to be so careful about this. God's rules are designed for our protection. They do not make us righteous. Matter of fact, as we're told by Paul in, in, in the epistles, God's laws show us that we are sinners because we cannot keep his laws. And you know, for us as Gentiles, we can't even keep the Ten Commandments, which is what we always think of when we think about the law. And we definitely can't keep all 613 of them, mostly because we don't even know them. Now, we have no idea what we've already violated because we don't know all the laws that we're, that we're supposed to keep. So we just need to be able to understand, going back to what was said earlier, we are a new creation. The Holy Spirit lives in us and is changing us to be more like God from the inside out. And the good news is, the more he changes us, the more we'll keep God's laws. Because he's making us more like him, and because all of his laws are related to him and his character, the more he makes us like him, the more we will become like him and be following his law. And that's the good news about for it. We start obeying him just because we become like him. And we hang out with him and the more we hang out with him, the more we become like him, the more we worship him. The scriptures tell us that we will become like what we worship. And the idea that when we mentioned it is 
They become like the idols they worship. And this is true. When you, when you look at somebody who's worshiping an idol or a lifestyle or something that has become an idol to them, they become like that idol. And idols always had some sinful lifestyle that was elevated to become more like it. The gods, of, gods and goddesses of fertility were all about licentious living, homosexuality, adultery, fornication. All of that was part of the worship of it. And people that worshiped in those areas became more and more licentious with their sexual behavior, much like our world. We have idols and gods all over our world. We just don't have statues of them like we used to. We still have the gods of power, the gods of, of promiscuity, the gods of all these different gods. We just don't have a god sitting out there that we bow down in front of. But it is something that has taken God's place, and we become like what we worship. And it's very important. I thought I was going to get done with this chapter. <laughs> We're going to stop here at verse 10. Huh? Close. Yeah, I got close. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. Lord, help us to look to always focus on you. Help us learn to worship you in, in full heart, soul, body, mind, that we will become more like you in our worship and help us to be new in our way of understanding and see you in your completeness and to treat others the way you see them and help us to always fulfill that. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.